I invite you to take your scriptures again and turn to that Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Being July 4th weekend, I want to begin and frame just our introduction tonight with this question. If I asked you, and you were here tonight, we had a survey and were able to ask the question, how many of you would want to be or want to be considered a good American? I, I think most people would want to answer yes to that question. I thought, well, how would you measure it? Um, Well, one way to do so would be to follow the model of the first Americans. And the signers of the Declaration of Independence, you you probably have heard the story of their lives, and I won't go into that in detail tonight. But if you've read them and know anything about them, you'll know that to the first Americans, it was a story of sacrifice and great loss and even of death. And after hearing their stories, maybe it would be good for us to ask ourselves, would you still want to be a good American if their lives were what we needed to follow in order to measure that definition properly? But what if I asked you another question? How many of you would want to be a good disciple? I mean, I think everyone who's a child of God, I, I would hope that they would want to raise their hand and indicate one way or the other, yes, yes, I do. I do heartily want to be a good disciple of Christ. But how would we measure it? Maybe in the same way. Maybe we would do it by whether we're following the model of the first disciples. There was really no signing of a declaration of independence, but in some sense there was a signing for the 12 apostles of the declaration of discipleship. And if you've read their stories and even the traditions of the histories of how they died, you'll know that when you signed on to be a disciple, it was a story of sacrifice and often of great loss, especially of material things, and even a story of death. And that's exactly what we find in the life of Stephen and in his death. And so I I would ask you tonight, if you knew that that's what it required, sacrifice, loss, and perhaps even death, would you still want to be a good disciple? Nach Folge. Nachfolge is a German word, and it's actually the title of a book by the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer that he wrote in 1937. And the English title is far more familiar to us, and it's The Cost of Discipleship. And in the book, uh, at the beginning of World War II, when he wrote it, he is writing about what it means for someone to be a good disciple of Jesus Christ, not just in the good times, but in the bad times, and for him, the Hitler times. And so he writes, Nachfolge. Nachfolge is the German word that means literally succession. It came to mean to imitate someone, to emulate, to follow them, thus the discipleship word. And in his book, Uh, The Cost of Discipleship, he has a number of what I would call interesting quotes about discipleship. One of them is, he says, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Another one that I wrote down, only a man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. Another one, if only that He becomes like us. It's only that he becomes like us, meaning Christ, that we can become like him. Those are all about discipleship, being like him, dying to ourselves. But perhaps the most famous quote by 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, especially when it comes to discipleship, is this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I can't think of a New Testament example other than the Apostle Paul that this isn't borne out any more clearly than in the life of Stephen. Uh, Based on the New Testament teachings of discipleship, I myself really, believe it or not, over the process of many years, have come to formulate what I call my life statement. I'm going to give you the formal version and then the uh, short version. Um, I, I've come to the conclusion that I most glorify God the Father when I, through God the Spirit, most exemplify God the Son. Short and firm form of that, I most glorify God when I most exemplify Jesus. I think God is most glorified in our life when we are most like Jesus. I believe wholeheartedly, 100%, that this must be, biblically, the most supreme goal of everyone who would want to and desire to be a good disciple. I mean, every true disciple is on a Jesus journey And it is not, I often say, it's not a perfect trajectory. It's not that in this life somehow we become like Jesus, that we will be like him in heaven. But it's a pattern trajectory to be like him. Not exactly like him and what he wore and what he looked like, but what he is like in his character, what he is like in his heart and life and mind. Certainly, in my estimation anyways, this is obvious in in Stephen's life, perhaps more than many, many others, and it's really brought to the forefront in Acts chapter 6 and 7. I believe that, as I said in my prayer, that Stephen exemplifies Jesus both in his life and his death. And I want to spend a little time looking at that tonight in Acts 6 and 7. Um, Stephen exemplified Jesus in his life. I would say that Stephen could also have uh, my life statement. He most glorified God here because he most exemplified Jesus. And so there's a slide on the screen I want to show now. And these are the ways, biblically, that Stephen was like Jesus in his life. And if you look at them and study them in detail, and we don't have as much time as I would like to go into all of them, but I can tell you the parallels between Stephen and Jesus in his life and in his death are pretty uncanny. And I wrote them and put them on the, on the screen for you tonight. They were both full of the Spirit, and you can see the verses that indicate those things. They both were full of wisdom. They both did signs and wonders. That was a thing I wasn't as familiar with when I studied Stephen's life. They both experienced transformation, or I should say transfiguration. Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, his whole visage, his whole face and everything was changed and he reflected God's glory on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and the three disciples. But it was also true when Um, Stephen gave the sermon that would actually be the cause of the end of his life. The Bible says, and they looked on him as if he had the face of an angel. His face actually was transfigured and reflected the glory of God as he gave it. They were transfigured. It's another way that he was like Jesus in his life. The heavens opened to Jesus at his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry. The heavens opened to Stephen at the end of his ministry. I mean, in so many ways in their life, and these would only be the ones the Bible indicates that Stephen was like Jesus and exemplified the life of Jesus in the way that he lived. You know, strangely, though, what's absent from the text in Acts 6 and 7 about Stephen is pretty much almost everything else. <laughs> I look for it in the text. You know, the Bible doesn't say, and we don't know his age. We don't know if he was about the age of Jesus or he was younger or older. I mean, we don't know whether he worked a job. Paul made tents and was a tent maker 
and work with leather and things. We don't know what he did, if he was bivocational, if he worked serving tables and helping with the Hellenistic Jews. We, we don't know if that was his full-time job or if he had others. We don't know whether he was ever married. We don't know his wife's name. We don't even know if he had children. We don't know how he became a Christian. Of the Apostle Paul, we know it was the Damascus Road experience. We don't know that about Stephen. But what we do know is what really matters. And that is that of all the thousands of believers that were saved in Pentecost and when P- Peter preached the messages of the good news of Jesus... Thousands and thousands of people get saved. Out of those people, they picked seven who would do the work of the ministry so that the apostles could pray and preach. And out of those seven, Stephen's name in Acts 6 is first on the list. I mean, he was held in incredibly high esteem. And I would tell you this, it's because of his Christ-likeness. But get this, being like Jesus, notice this, unlike the apostles, he never wrote a book of the Bible He did not, as we know it, become a missionary. He never planted a church. He didn't do any of those things. He wasn't known for any of these things. You know what Stephen was known for? For being like Jesus. He was just like Jesus. So let me ask you the obvious overflow in that question is, does your life exemplify Jesus? Now, in the things I listed in the parallels on the the screen and the slide, see, you're not going to do the ones where you... uh, experience transfer. You're not going to have the heavens open to you. You're not going to do signs and wonders. But what about being filled with the Spirit? What about showing the wisdom and the choices and things that you, how you live your life? Stephen had that. He had that. See, if you read his sermon that he preached in Acts 7, that wisdom was detailed. And in it, we'll just, I just want to outline it real quickly. In his sermon, he showed the Israelites, especially the religious leaders, that they were living out the pattern of rejection of their leaders that had been taking place from the very beginning. I mean, the 12 patriarch rejected their own brother Joseph, and he turned out to be their deliverer. In chapter 7 and verse 35, when Moses came on the scene and he expected them to know that he was going to deliver them from Egypt and bondage, they didn't know it, and they rejected him. And then it comes to Jesus, and it's no surprise. They rejected Joseph, their deliverer. They rejected Moses, their deliverer, and in the same exact pattern, they reject Jesus, who would be the ultimate deliverer. And so Stephen's not surprised, I don't think, in the end, that they reject him also and end up taking his life. But the point I want to make is this, that in everything and how he read the Bible, how he saw the story of God, and how he was living in it, here's what he saw. That everyone and everything in the Bible story, including his own life, The goal of it, the aim of it, the purpose of it was this, to point to Jesus. That's what it means to exemplify him. To have your life in its entirety, in its wholeness, be about Jesus, point to Jesus, centered in Jesus, saturated, dominated, soaked in Jesus. So how about you? Is your speech like Jesus in the words that you use? The things that you say? How about in your morality? Not just in your sexual purity as far as actions are concerned, but what about the things you watch and the things that you listen to and the movies that you see? How about your love for the lost? Are you like Jesus in that? Does your heart have a compassion when you see people? Do you see them as sheep having no shepherd? Do you look at them and say, here are people that I rub shoulders with that 
could die and go to hell. Do we see them? Do we, are we like Jesus? Are we like him in our desires to be a disciple and to make disciples? It was the greatest and last desire of Jesus when he went to heaven and ascended on the clouds was that his disciples would make disciples. Are you make, have you ever made a disciple? Do you have that aim, the one that Jesus gave us? Is your life filled with love for people like Jesus? I thought about Stephen's life this week, and I, I would imagine, because of the way that he lived and the way that he died, that when people thought of him, when they were actually with him in, in his lifetime, and then as they look back on him, I would say this, when they thought of Stephen, I would guess they thought of Jesus. So what do people think most of when they think of you? Is it your passion to be successful, to make money, to have things? Or is it to share what God has given to you with others? Do they think of your personality and maybe it's either always finding some wrong in people, always correcting them, always having to be right? Or do they see Jesus in you that you support and encourage other people and that you have to be righteous more than you have to be right? Do they see in you a critical spirit that always judges and condemns people and thinks the worst right off the bat? Or do they see his love flowing in you, the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love that believes the best, not naively, but because you want to believe the best until you know otherwise, because that's how you, you're an encouraging person, an encouraging spirit. Do they see in you regular attempts to point to yourself and your conversation and everything? They ha- Is it always you that you're talking about? Or does your life and your speech and the direction of everything in your life point to him? See, do they think of Jesus when they think of you? I love this song. In fact, we're going to end our service in a little bit with it. But I want to tell you the song words ahead of time, the lyrics. The song is by J.J. Weeks' band. It's Let Them See You and Me. And in the first verse of it, it says, take away the melody, because he's a singer. This is what he is. It's his main thing in life. Take away the songs I sing. Take away all the lines and all the songs you let me write. He says, does the man I am today say the words you need to say? He says, when it comes down to the core of the main thing about me is the main thing about Jesus, who is the main thing. So whatever it is, so what would you say if the song is a song that you were writing? Take away the sports. (laughs) Take away the job that I have and the position in my, take away the education and the achievements that I've made. Take away all the stuff I've, when it comes down to the core, the main thing about you is the main thing about the main one. And here's what he says. He wants it to be. He wants his life to say the words that need to be said. And what are those words? Well, he says it in the chorus. Let them see you in me. Let them hear you when I speak. And I take it to mean speak the words in a song. Let them feel you when I sing. Let them see you. Let them see you in me. See, you see what he says? When I'm talking, when they hear me speak, when I'm singing, whatever I'm doing, I want all of it, the songs. I want them to see you. And, And that was true. That was true in Stephen's life. They saw Jesus. 
in him. And he was like Jesus. He exemplified Jesus in his life. But secondly, he also exemplified Jesus, number two, in his death. In verses 54 through 60 outline that our text tonight, they were enraged. They ripped or sawn asunder in their hearts. I said that they were angry at him. And I have a second chart. It's on the screen now. And these are the parallels between Jesus and Stephen in his death. You can see they both were brought before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Jesus announced that he was the Son of God. and They would see him at the right hand. Stephen says he sees the Son of God as the heavens are open to him and Jesus is standing at God's right hand. They both are condemned for blasphemy, the same blasphemy that said that Jesus was vindicated and that he's at God's right hand. And not only is he there, but he shares God's glory and will be the one who judges them one day. He, they were killed for that. And, and speaking of being killed, they both were killed outside the city. They both said to God when they were dying, receive my spirit. And they both said as they died, the very last words on their lips as they were dying was words of forgiveness that God would not lay the sin of their murderers to their own charge. Uh, So amazing parallels. Stephen is so much like Jesus in both his life and in his death. Let me just close tonight with some parallels that I want to apply to our lives tonight in Stephen being like Jesus in his death. There's four of them. Let me just briefly go by them. Number one, they both spoke the same message. Chapter 7 in verse 54 starts with, Now when they heard these things, it's used four times in the New Testament, and they're all by Luke. Um, The exact phrase is used in our passage. It's also used in Acts 11, 18, and 17.8, and they always describe the response of a crowd to a message they're hearing. The chief one is the one used of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 and verse 28, and he was at a synagogue, and it says that when they heard these words about he telling, telling them that God doesn't just love Jewish people, he loves Gentile people, basically, that they want to take him, and they take him outside the city, and they want to throw him over a hill, which is usually an indication what they're going to do right before they stone you to death. And so when they heard these things, it introduces Jesus' stoning attempt, and it also introduces Stephen's stoning attempt. Stephen, as he's actually being stoned, in verses 55 and 56, He says that he looks up and the heavens are open to him and he sees the Son of Man. Now you might take not mean, that doesn't mean a lot. Perhaps you don't think it's a big deal. But let me tell you that it was Jesus' favorite self-designation for him. 26 times Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in the Gospels. Now here's the catch. Only three times outside the Gospel is the phrase Son of Man ever used. Two of them are in Revelation. The only one spoken by someone other than Jesus is Stephen in Acts 7.54. Stephen sees God's glory and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing right next to him. You know what he's saying? He's saying Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And you murdered him. And he was the Son of Man. Son of Man is the depiction of Daniel 7.13 and 14 when the Son of Man ascends into heaven and takes seat at the right hand of God to be the judge. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, I see Jesus, which vindicates him. You murdered and crucified him, but God glorified him, he says. 
Abraham saw God's glory in Stephen's message 7-2. Moses saw God's glory. Stephen sees God's glory. But Jesus is God's glory. And as Stephen has the heavens open to him, here's why. Because seeing Jesus standing at God's right hand vindicates that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And let me tell you this, and it's amazing, isn't it? That when you're like Jesus through your life, you see Jesus at your death. I think that is an amazing analogy. Saying Jesus was the Son of Man who ascended to God's throne ended getting Jesus and him both killed. Jesus said it at his trial when they were trying to charge him with blasphemy in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. He says, you will see the Son of Man, ascending to heaven at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus made the same claim, and now Stephen actually sees it, and both of them are killed by it. Now, here's a key thing. In almost every example, in fact, I think every example but this one, when the Bible depicts Jesus at God's right hand, he is always sitting He is seated at God's right hand. This is the only time in the entire New Testament, and if I'm not mistaken, the entire Bible, where Jesus is standing at his right hand. And commentators have argued and have thought through what does it mean that he's not sitting, because sitting means he's accomplished it. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And when he stands up, what I think it is that when Stephen's dying and sees Jesus, he's vindicating Jesus. And when Jesus stands up, he is vindicating Stephen. You know what he's saying? He says, this guy is right, and all the people stoning him are wrong. He's standing up for Stephen, who is just like him. You know what? I, I couldn't help but ask myself this week. I hope you'll do the same. I hope you'll ask yourself all the time, would Jesus ever really stand up for me? Would he? Would he stand up for me because in my life, and if God wills, in my death, that I am being like him, that the greatest aim and aspiration of my life was to be like him? See, they share the same message. Secondly, they suffered the same mistreatment. The Bible says in Acts 7, 58, that they took Stephen and cast him out of the city. The word cast out is a word most often used to cast out and exercise a demon out of someone. And that's probably what they thought they were doing. They were exercising Jesus, who they thought was of the devil, outside their city. And they do. They, kick him, they take him outside the city. And the reason they do, because Luke, Leviticus 24, 14, Numbers 15.35 say that when you stone someone for blasphemy or they commit a capital punishment crime, you have to take them outside the city because you can't defile those inside the city with them because everything outside the city, lepers, diseased people, carcasses of sacrifices, all were unclean. And people who committed blasphemy had to be taken out and considered unclean. So they had to be stoned outside the city. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you're still following along, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 13 real quickly. Hebrews is exhorting Jewish and even Gentile Christians to follow Jesus, to be like him at any cost. Nachfolge, the cost of discipleship. Chapter 10, it talks about them having their goods and their houses plundered uh, for being like Jesus and following him. And one of the final exhortations of this epistle in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12 says, So Jesus also 
suffered outside the gate. He was treated, the son of God was treated as if he was unclean, that he was just as bad or worse than a leper or a diseased person or just some animal sacrifice carcass that had to be dumped. That's how he was treated. It says he suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify. See, he became unclean and took our uncleanness to make us clean, to sanctify and set us apart As a people through his own blood, he was that sacrifice, see. Therefore, though, it's not just thank you, Jesus, for your bloody sacrifice and and death on the cross. No, no, when you become a disciple, there's obligations that go along with it. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. See, it's not just for him to go outside the camp and we get to stay inside the city. No, not at all. He says, listen, you come and die Isn't that what he said, Bonhoeffer? When God calls a man, when Jesus calls, he bids him come and die. See, it's for you. The cross is not just his, it's yours. Come outside the gate. Come outside the city, he says. It's our sacrifices that he was looking towards. Would you do that for him? Maybe you've experienced that. So because you stand up for him in the past at your school, or you don't stand up for him because you don't want to be unpopular, you don't want to be considered an outcast. So we don't do the things and say the things at our work that we need to. So we don't stand up, even in amongst our own friends and families. We're not willing to follow Christ that far or pay the cost. But here's what a disciple, a good disciple is. It's one who follows Jesus. Revelation 14 says they follow the Lamb wherever he goes even if it means the shedding of their own blood. See, they, were the, they spoke the same message, they suffered the same mistreatment, and thirdly, they shared the same message, I mean, the same mission. Their death and its purpose impacted others. I don't think it's a small or trivial thing that in our text in Acts 7 that this is our first introduction to the Apostle Paul, who at that time was Saul of Tarsus, he's standing there, and Stephen, as he's being stoned, and I won't gross you out tonight, because being stoned was not just people throwing rocks at you, it was hideous, horrible, torturous death. Saul of Tarsus was watching the witnesses kill uh, kill Stephen, and he was giving consent to it, and he was watching their garments as they all took off their robes so that they could throw rocks at him more freely. But that event, even though at the time it didn't seem to penetrate, here's what the Apostle Paul says of his own life, looking back at the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 22.20. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving of it. He goes, that's what I used to be, but Jesus changed me. Stephen's death became part of Saul's testimony. And when he talked about his life and how he was changed by the grace of God, Saul, who became Paul, couldn't help but remember the life of Stephen and how much he was like Jesus. And I can't help but wonder, as you read through the book of Acts, a couple passages or chapters earlier, that maybe when he wrote this verse, he was thinking about how Stephen viewed his life In Acts 20, 24, Paul says, But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus to testify, to witness 
of the grace of God, which is exactly what Stephen did in his life and his death. He, he testified to God's grace. He didn't count his life precious. And maybe it's perhaps that that's where Paul got some of his inspiration to be like Jesus himself. The last one, in the last parallel between the two of them and their death, he spoke the same message. He suffered the same mistreatment. He shared the same mission. And lastly, he showed the same mercy. The last few verses, verses 59 and 60, are filled with contrast between Stephen and the religious leaders and comparisons between Jesus and Stephen. And those ones we've already outlined a little bit. Stephen and Jesus both say, Lord, receive my spirit. Jesus and Peter, I should say, and Stephen both kneel down and pray and, and have a prayer. Jesus from the cross, Stephen while he's being stoned. They both say, Lord, don't hold this sin against them or forgive them. But it's amazing in the text, some of the language, that even it says, and they stop their ears and they cried out with a loud voice. And when they do that, they run on him and, and seize him and cast him outside the city. But in contrast, at the end of the text, when he's dying, it says Stephen also cries out with a loud voice. Not in wrath and anger like the religious leaders, but he cries out with a loud voice. And here's what he says. Forgive them. I mean, you couldn't get a greater contrast. And see, that's what's going to take place when you decide to be committed to being like Jesus. You will not be like everybody else. You won't see light the same way. You won't see mistreatment the same way. You won't see the purpose of your life the same way. You'll be so different, not odd different, but God different, see. And, and, and being like Jesus means you will not be like others, even religious people, even people that you rub shoulders with perhaps in the youth group or in the singles or, or in our church. Because being like Jesus will often mean that you're not like very many other people. The religious leaders had no heart, no mercy, none for Stephen, but he had a heart full of mercy for them. You see, one of the greatest tests, I think, of being a good disciple, of being like Jesus, is how quick we are to fight or to forgive. I mean, when he's dying, like Jesus, he shows enemy love. You know why? Because he's full of the Spirit. It, it says from the very beginning, in contrast, 751, he accuses the religious leaders of resisting the Spirit. But in contrast, he is full of the Spirit. And you want to know how? It was not some mystical, supernatural thing. You know what the difference between not filled with the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit is? You're being like Jesus, namely in this, that when people mistreat you, you are quick to forgive, quick to show mercy, quick to love. Oh, to God, that that would be his people more and more. And we live in a culture right now where there's so many conflicts and so many, and we are so quick to judge and so quick to see the wrong thing in people. And we are so quick to indict people and think the worst of people. But not Stephen, see, because in being like Jesus in the worst and darkest moments of your life, the response that he has to the very people who are murdering him, do you get it? It's forgiveness. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, Luke 23 34. He says, don't lay this sin to their charge. It was his dying words. May we take his dying words and may we live by them in all of our relationships each and every day. So again, can I ask you, 
Do you think you want to be a good disciple? When you look at Stephen's life and you give an appraisal of all that that means and you see the cost that it might exact from you, do you still want to be? Can I tell you this? It is the greatest life. I wish I could say that I was more like Jesus than I am, but I can tell you this. It's the best and the greatest and most worthwhile struggle that there is. When Jesus calls a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. Let's listen to the song and let the words change our hearts. Let Christ, let Jesus, let him be seen in me.